Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Boris is back. The three greatest words in the English language this morning. The Prime Minister returned to work just a few hours ago and gave a rallying cry to the nation that we are beating this ghastly disease slowly but surely and that we just need to hold our nerve for a little bit longer as we prepare to get back to our lives once again. Despite the haters, despite the doubters, despite the snakes in the media and even the Labour Party MPs who have been accusing him of murder, the Prime Minister is back at his desk and back in charge of the country. I could not be happier, ladies and gentlemen. So now the business of what to do next is the order of the day. We'll be checking in with former government advisor Lucien Hudson and Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens, who will both have their views on what's next for fixing the economy, which is surely now the conversation that we all have to have. We will also examine just why the lefties got so worked up over the weekend about Dominic Cummings attending a few meetings, when last week they were all up in arms because Boris didn't attend any. Very weird, isn't it? And as ever, we need to hear from you. In the past few days, it's become increasingly clear to me that more people are rebelling against the advice to stay home and save lives. We need to hear your stories, your observations and your experience. So please do call us. You know the number, 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be hearing why the music business is so upset about former Labour Party deputy leader Tom Watson being given a key job representing the industry for no apparent reason, just because he went to Glastonbury once. I mean, it hardly makes him an expert, does it? Uh, and of course, uh, in our homeschooling section today, we are taking a little visit down to Stonehenge in Wiltshire, home of the Druids. And as ever, we are live streaming on YouTube, on Twitter uh, and on Facebook as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Much for us to do, uh, including Peter Hitchens coming up at 11 o'clock. Uh, it'll be round four for us, which is not so much of a competition anymore or a boxing match anymore. It's literally a discussion, an exchange of ideas uh, and a kind of where are we now type situation. Peter has been writing, of course, for the Mail on Sunday over the weekend, talking about still how much he feels that, uh, you know, the damage to the economy uh, is going to be far, far worse than the damage that the virus has ever done. Uh, what I was saying over the course of the last few days is that certainly the evidence suggests to me, certainly in, in London and around the southeast, that the police have eased up a little bit on their kind of um, policing of the streets and of the parks and of the places where people go. And I wonder whether that has anything to do with the, uh, the hard time they were given after last Thursday's um, sort of exhibition again on Westminster Bridge. Let's talk to Ken Marsh, chair of the Met Police Federation. Ken, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning. I get the sense, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, that there was a little the policing this weekend was a little bit more relaxed than it was perhaps the previous weekend. No, it's been no different uh, for us in terms of what we're doing and how we're going about our work. Um, the difficulty is that uh, there's not clear messaging as to, I think, now what we should or shouldn't be doing. Yes, well, that is the trouble, and certainly, I think, and I don't know what your, your your feeling is about what went on on Thursday night and Westminster Bridge, and the, and the previous Thursday when Cressida Dick, I thought, had apologised for for taking her her her, um, her officers onto a bridge and, and allowing them to mingle so closely with one another without taking any advantage of social distancing, and then they did it again on Thursday, and I think a lot of people were quite surprised that the police were, on the, while at the same time telling people to, to go home, were sort of hanging about on a bridge with each other? Well, they weren't hanging about. They went there to praise our national health Yeah, colleagues. but it's not, that's not meant to happen, Ken. They're supposed to do it outside of their houses. It's, it's a thing which we do to save lives and to help the NHS and to congratulate and, 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 uh, and, and recognise the NHS, but it's not supposed to be putting lives in danger, which is technically what they're doing. Well, I, I'd have to correct you because you weren't there. And uh, what took place I don't have to be there. I've seen the video. Hold on, hold on, Ken. Hold on. Let, let me answer you. All right. My colleagues were standing in the correct spaces, and so was the commissioner. A lot of people, members of public, uh, and listen, I'm not for one minute saying it was what we wanted to happen, but a lot of public turned up, and it, it did create a large crowd of people. Now, you can isolate one incident, and, and I'm not saying it was good, I'm not saying it was acceptable, and I don't think you'll ever see it happen again. Well, are you sure that's not going to happen on Thursday? Because if that's the case, I will claim a victory, because I was saying last Friday this should not happen again. And what you're basically telling me, Ken, is that the police are encouraging crowds to gather, which is precisely what they then tell them not to do. OK, well, I've just explained to you my views around that and I'm pretty sure that won't happen again. Well, well I'm very pleased to hear that. So as far as um, the general public is concerned, uh, out and about this weekend there were an awful lot more people than there were the weekend before. Yeah. What's your response to that? Well, uh, again, this is, uh, it's very difficult because it's very easy to chastise the police and you're as quick as anyone else and just have, but... <laughs> the police should have an opportunity to respond. We have been given a set of laws that are very, very difficult to deal with, very difficult to manage, and we police by consent. So you are seeing a clear sea change, and you saw that in the COBRA briefing around the movement of traffic and people movement, etc., and it is starting to increase. Now, you've got to explain, and I mean by that the government, have got to explain how they want the police to deal with this. If you want to start relaxing it, then, OK, tell us that. But if you want it kept as it is, and we believe at the moment that is how it is, then you've got to tell us that as well. Well, you see, my understanding, and I have no reason to believe this other than uh, having invented it myself, mm. is that there's clearly some kind of unofficial government guidelines being given out to some companies, to some individuals, uh, who are kind of... Because, because they also govern by consent in a way, you know? They don't want to be too draconian. I think mm. they don't want to tell people what to do. I think they want to leave it up to other people, to, like they do in Sweden, to kind of make up their own minds. But because of that... Uh, whenever the weather gets better, more people go out and about. I, I agree with you fully. And, uh, you know, this is the dilemma. I, we, we do what we're told to do by the government. We are the servants of. Now, 
explain to us, as in my colleagues, what you want us to do, and that will be carried out. But you can't have the scenario we saw unfold over the last two or three days, where my colleagues are telling two people in a park not to sit in a bench, but 50 yards away, there's 300 people, can't put a fag packet between them, queuing yeah. to go into a DIY store. Well, exactly. And that is, I mean, and that is a problem, and I have absolute sympathy, and I, I, I hope you don't think, Ken, that I uh, unilaterally attack the police, because I really don't. I do think what they did on Thursday night was wrong, and I'm glad mm -hmm. to hear you say they shouldn't be doing that again. And I do sympathise with, with the individual officers, because I know it's difficult to be at one time firm, but at the same time kind of relaxed, and it's kind of, they have to strike that balance. Yeah, you know, and this goes back to the um, policing by consent. And, and that's how it should be. Don't get me wrong, for one minute. I don't want it changing and, and we end up like, God forbid, uh, other countries that we could name. It, it needs to be like that. But what, what this has proved to us that we've never seen before in our lifetimes or anyone else's, this has proved to us that at times I think our legislation is very challenging, very difficult to deal with because it's not, Cut and shut. It's, you know, it's not as straightforward as you'd like it to be. No, quite. And what about where we go from here? Because presumably, um, as the, 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 lock, the lockdown does start to become slightly lifted, mm. um, the role for the police will still be to kind of try and keep a lid on it, if you like, because there's always a chance, for example, I mean, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, if everybody was told, for example, right, Brighton Beach is open again, right? Yeah. Presumably, the weather gets better, everybody goes to Brighton Beach, whereas at the moment... If they say it's closed and a few people go, then that's kind of manageable. Yeah, and, and listen, this is why I'm starting this conversation, have started this conversation over the weekend, for the exact reason that you've just animated very well. Mm. But, you know, we have to have clear guidance as to how you want to roll this out, how the changes are going to be put into place, and, and, and we've got to take the public with us. And there is a little bit of, Janet and John, let's mm. explain it as we go along right. so that people are very clear as to what they can and can't do. Yes, but I think also the narrative, Ken, has been from the government that every week it changes because, yeah. you know, for example, next week it might be all right to go and sit in the park on a, on a, uh, uh, on a picnic chair. It might be OK if they open up the pubs and we can sit in a beer garden as long as we're two metres away from one another. So, mm. so you, also, you guys also have to be quite agile about that. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest difficulties or frustrations is this is obviously clinically led, it's led by scientists, etc. But ultimately, they do not make the decisions. Politicians do. And, you know, we answer to the politicians in terms of what they want us as their police to, to, to deal with. Right. So, so be clear. Be very, very concise with us as to what you want and change it on a weekly basis, change it on a daily basis, but tell us. Yeah. And what about driving? Because, again, yeah. um, lots more cars on the road. I, I noticed that just anecdotally because I do happen to drive into work and I do mm. have to come to work because I need to be here in order for the, for the, for the signal to get out there. Um, you know... How about the, the, the situation with, with, with roadblocks and things? Because I know previous weekends there have been the odd police roadblock on... on uh, I saw one on, on Blackfriars Bridge a couple mm. of weekends ago. Is that, is that policy now or what? Well, it's not policy, um, but, but again, this is about... You know, if the vehicle movement is increasing quite rapidly, and, and we've seen on the COBRA briefings that it is, then you've got to tell us what you want us to do in relation to it, because we can't have this slow slippage, which is what is happening. Mm. And then, you know, we get the commentary, and you, you, your commentary started with, are we being more relaxed as the police? No, yeah. we're not. But 
there is a lot more out there for us to have to suddenly deal with. Yes. So you're saying it's 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 you're you're more sort of spread out. You're thinner on the ground. In Absolutely. Other words. Right. And how long can you keep this up for? Because we heard long before this um, situation that you really were short of numbers and resources were, were limited. So, are a lot of people at the moment on overtime? How's it working? No. So our numbers are actually our resilience is very very good. Um, our numbers for this time of the year on a normal year are better than they normally are. If that okay. Makes sense. All right. So we have no shortage of officers, um, but. The, the issues we have are not issues, but, but things that we're confronting are completely different. For instance, domestic violence has, has soared massively, which is taking huge resources of our colleagues going into domestic homes, etc., and dealing with that. There's a lot of other crime which has, uh, has surged when other crime has gone down. So we're, we're having to readjust to how we're policing. Yes. And so would you anticipate that you can keep this on up for a while then, in other words? Yeah, yeah. There's no issue in terms of we will be out there and we will be policing as we're asked to do so. We, we have the resilience, we have the numbers. Um, it's, just, it's just a different world in terms of what we're being asked to do. Yeah, OK. Ken Marsh, thank you very much indeed, uh, Chair of the Metropolitan Police Federation. Uh, I'm very encouraged by what Ken has said, which is basically uh, that he does not expect to see any police officers out on Westminster Bridge this Thursday. This has been a campaign of mine which I've been going on about since last Friday because I couldn't believe my eyes last Thursday night when it all happened again. And the idea that the police somehow think it's OK uh, for them to go and stand on Westminster Bridge and clap the NHS, even though at the same time, by doing so, they are attracting a crowd which is supposed to be against the law, then it beggars belief that they go ahead and do it. So if they are now actually accepting and admitting that they're not going to do it, I think we've finally made a step in the right direction, haven't we? Another victory for the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Lots more for us to do, uh, including more of your calls as well. We'll be finding out what's going on in North Korea uh, coming up next. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Coming up at 11 o'clock, we're going to have another encounter with Peter Hitchens. It will be our fourth occasion of discussing what is going on with the lockdown, uh, where he thinks it should go, uh, what he thinks this week as opposed to what he thought last week. He's still very much on the side of the Swedish, thinking that what they're doing and how they're doing it uh, is a far more sensible way uh, of containing the economy and the economic success of the country than what we are doing. But I have to say, I'm pretty encouraged by Boris Johnson's return to Downing Street, pretty encouraged by what he's been saying and fairly encouraged as well about precisely what we do next and how we have that conversation. So I want you to join in that conversation as well. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk now, though, to Aidan Foster-Carter, Honorary Senior Research Fellow in Sociology and Modern Career at Leeds University, because there's been some very, very strange developments and stories over the course of the last week, week or so where somebody suggested that Kim Jong-un might actually not any longer be alive. Other people said that uh, he had been somehow assassinated. Other people said he'd been poisoned, that he'd somehow fallen and victim to coronavirus. Let's find out from Aidan what is going on. Aidan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, and how very flattering that you think you're going to find out from me what is going on. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure. A sociologist. I, I discuss theories. Well, I'm sure you. Know, I'm sure you know North Korea far better than I do, because to be fair, not very many people know much about North Korea because it's such a secretive place. They are secretive. They are ultra secretive about where the leader is, and they are ultra ultra secretive about the state of health of the leader. Even when you can see, like uh, back in the day, if people remember his father Kim Jong Il. Clearly, in his last couple of years, he was he wasn't well. And this one, Kim Jong Un, well, um, he, he is not slim and svelte like his sister, is he? Um, he's got larger since he's been in power. He smokes everywhere, including in hospitals. So. His father and his grandfather died of heart condition, so you know, he, he's clearly not looking after himself. So I think that, you know, that, that there are concerns, and uh, I can reel off all the theories, if you like. Would yes, you like that? Yes, right, well, let's, let's do that, yeah, because, I mean, in I a, in a funny... I get them all in a tweet now that they're... <laughs> in a, I mean, in a funny sort of way, the more secretive a country is, the more fascinating it becomes to me, so, so I'm... I think I'm... that is so, and there's a slight sort of, yeah, forbidden fruit element yeah. for people. It does mean, though, that people make up all kinds of stuff, you right. know, feeding his enemies to piranhas. Some people have been watching <laughs> too many old James Bond films. Yeah, really. But anyway, this one, three, three, three main ones... He had a heart operation. One variant, the original story set from out of South Korea said, and he was recovering. The second one is uh, from CNN, uh, unnamed U.S. intelligence, botched, and he's very ill. And the third variant out of Hong Kong, that he's actually dead. Right. Then there's a second one, much more, that, that's to do with coronavirus. Not that he's got it. Every story is a coronavirus story, yes. isn't it? Now, but the suggestion that either that he's just being very careful. I mean, North Korea claims that they don't have it, but not a lot of people believe them. So he's being careful and staying out of Pyongyang and not going to stuff if he can help it. Or more specifically, a leading South Korean paper, the Jungang Ilbo today, suggests that one of his guards has got it. So that's two COVIDs. And finally, this one is fun. I only saw it a few hours ago. Another South Korean paper, the Dongai Ilbo, says that he went, he was supervising, a, or he was at a missile test on the April the 14th. We do know that's true. We do know that that test happened, and very unusually, the North Koreans didn't announce it, but, you know, the South Koreans saw the rockets whizzing, and he got too close and was injured. So yeah. how about that one? Interesting. Well, that none of this is true. He's going to pop up and say, fooled you, bourgeois <laughs> reptile media and all that. Right. Well, I mean, I heard a story right, right at the start, I think, of, of all of this, that there was one person who had contracted coronavirus um, who was in North Korea who had then been executed by Kim Jong-un um, and shot, basically, uh, and that was why they didn't have coronavirus. Well, I, mean, I presume that's uh, not that true either. That was a classic example of, of, I think, probably completely made-up stories, certainly completely unconfirmed. I mean, there's, there's, there's good and bad unconfirmed, there's plausible and not plausible. I think I mean, there's... there's 
the same source. It's called Daily NK. It's produced in Seoul by some defectors, some North Korean sort of human rights activists. They seem to have good sources inside Korea, North Korea. A lot of their stuff checks out. They say they're the source of the heart attack thing. But sorry, uh, uh, but the, the heart attack, but recovering. But they have had a number of, you know, quite a lot of chapter and verse, different places, doctors in the port of Nampo and so on. That, that, that Probably there are quite a few coronavirus cases. I mean, they have a long and it may be a you know, very closed society, and they certainly tried to sort of go into shutting the borders, which I think they would do at a moment's notice anyway. But uh, they've got a long and porous border with China, basically. Smugglers go across it and so on. And no, though northeast China is not as badly affected as some other parts of China have been, China as a whole, of course, now getting towards a recovery phase. Yes. I mean, it stretches belief that they don't have it somewhere. And he would be being careful. So I'm kind of, if I had to put money on it, um, I w I'm kind of going for something coronavirus connected now and, and that he'll come back. Right. I mean, I, again, you're not a medical man, so you may not wish to Absolutely answer this. But, but, I mean, given that it is a very isolated country and very few people travel either into it or out of it, I mean, it's possible, I suppose, that they might have a less virulent form of coronavirus outbreak than the rest of the world just because nobody's really moving around much. People do move around a bit, though. We forget that although it's nominally a sort of a, a very tightly controlled society, absolutely, and a sort of state-led economy, but ever since the terrible famine that some people might remember that killed at least several hundred thousand North Koreans 20 years ago, uh, to stop that happening again, they've sort of tolerated private markets. So actually, people do travel around. Not, it's not on the same scale as in sort of you know, normal modern societies, but the, certainly there would have been the opportunity for it to spread. And, you know, ships come into port and so on, even with restrictions and so on. Sure. So, um, it, and it's, it, they are very controlled, it, so it's possible they could, they could have fewer than, than, uh, than we do. But, you know, the strange thing, you see a lot of pictures and people, you know, people are wearing masks, the cabinet's wearing masks, Kim Jong-un never wearing a mask, yeah. of course. Um, but, you, so they're doing all the stuff that you would do if you had it around and that you probably wouldn't do if you were really confident you didn't have it. Yes. I suppose as well, because he likes this sort of cult of personality, he presumably wants to show the, the, the country that he runs that he is not frightened of it and he therefore doesn't need to wear a mask because he's kind of superhuman. I guess that's right. I mean, it is a bit of a puzzle. But as I've said, I mean, it, there is a broader thing of him being careless of his health. And this is what surprises me. I mean, it, I don't know if you want to go on to this stuff, but you know, if he is very ill, the, it's... Uh, was it Louis the Fourteenth who said "L'état c'est moi"? The state is me. The something mm. um, because uh, it, you know, it's such it's it's so personalised. A in the way it's actually run, and B in the way it's it's legitimated. It's put forward. If he does pop his clogs, um, what then? Now, well, I know, I was, you know, you, you're one step ahead of me. I was about to ask you that very question. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, that's okay. Ahead. You, no, that's you, okay. You know, pull, pull me back. It's a perfect. No, it's a perfect interview. I don't need to ask you anything. You just tell me stuff. <laughs> Just press the button and I'll just wrap it on. Yeah, so what does happen? Does his sister take over? I think there's a chance of that. But in the, um, you know, they've, 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 they've managed successions before, which is true, and I never thought they would. So, you know, those of us who were saying for years, the bound to collapse, bound to collapse, just sort of, sort of weird place, were wrong. Uh, if they had a successor in place, it was fine. They've chosen to go this monarchical route. You know, more sensible countries might, uh, you know, a committee would take over and mm. sort of a more normal communism or something might, yeah. might, might happen. But that, that, that has not occurred. Um, so the sister, possibly, there's possibly, but he, you know, his, his own children are definitely too young to do this. 
He's got, we don't really know what his children he has, so he may have up to three, but the oldest is ten. I mean, it's very much like if anyone's done their medieval history of almost any country, European nation, whatever, you know, <laughs> children do inherit sometimes, then there has to be a regent. All manner of plotting can actually go on. So it, the point is it's far from clear, and different groups are in the military who were more powerful under his father, Kim Jong-il, and who Kim Jong-un has reigned back, you know, might make a play for power. Mm. Um, it could be unstable. This is a country with an unknown number of nuclear weapons, the question of whose finger is on the button. Uh, there are quite a lot of things to worry about if, you know, he's gravely, he's yes. either dead or, or, for that matter, out of action. And is he, does he have kids? I don't even know if he does. We think so. Um, uh, all, all reliable sources. Remember Dennis Rodman? Yes. The slightly strange retired. Yes, I do remember him, yeah. Player who had, what, three trips there, including parting on that the That was yacht. very odd, wasn't it? That was very odd, but, you know, something... <laughs> Some of the weirdness is true, so, and some of it's made up. This is true. I mean, Rodman was there. Rodman referred to a daughter. Other sources, as I say, suggest other children, uh, a son of ten. Right. And I, I can't remember the, the sex of the putative third one. But anyway, they're all little. Right. So they couldn't do it on their own. Someone would let have okay. to bigger head. And, and so, can you, you know, tell me also... question marks, really. One of the things that always fascinated me was that before he became the leader, when his father, I think, was still alive and there was talk of it happening... Um, there was there was discussion about how he used to live in Switzerland and he'd gone to sort of school there. That's right. Um, and one of his favourite things to do was to watch uh, Rambo movies and drink cognac, very expensive cognac. Is that all true? Uh, again, the the best source on all of this is uh, the book by the Washington Post journalist Anna Fifield. Uh -huh. He was at school in Switzerland, so was Kim Yo Jong. Um, you know, they, they had some years of schooling, but he was he was nine when he started. That's a bit mm. young for the cognac. Um, <laughs> he, he likes the fine things of life. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably visible. Uh, but he, you know, he had the. I think the more interesting point in a way to make about that is that he's had you know some years. Um, several years of exposure as a child to sort of Western ways of life and so on. And it's just like with Bashar Assad, you know, who's this quite yes. unassuming, what was he, op op optician, ophthalmic yes. surgeon in London, and right. then goes back and <laughs> inherits a mass-murdering dictatorship. <laughs> and likewise, Kim Jong-un, you know, hopes that sort of some sort of liberalism would, would rub off. Um, completely not the case. No, quite. Well, fascinating talking to you, Aidan. Thank you very much indeed, and uh, welcome to the show. We'll have you on again, because I, I like the cut of your jib, as we like to say. Aidan Foster-Carter, Honorary Senior Research Fellow in Sociology and Modern Career at Leeds University. I feel as if we know more about Kim Jong-un now than we did ten minutes ago. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning and a Monday morning once more to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, a very good uh, day to you. Good day to you too. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I definitely got the sense this weekend, and I don't know whether you were able to witness this, that there was a sort of slightly more relaxed uh, tone to the nation, that there were more people out and about, that there was much more kind of going on, if you like. Well, certainly more traffic on the road. Yeah. Uh, I, Sunday is always a day when people, people still do try to maintain some sort of difference between the days of the week, despite mm. being locked out of work. Right. Uh, there were more people out than there would have been on, on a Wednesday, or indeed than there are out today. But I think the big measure has been the extra traffic on the roads. Yes. I think there is definitely that, and I suspect that's because quite a lot of people who... Uh, who work for themselves are probably beginning to do so again. Well, I wonder as well, because we saw uh, from some of the pictures last week from Edinburgh, there was a, a, a branch of five guys that had opened up. We've seen various other food outlets kind of opening, even if they're only just producing food for NHS workers. There, there seem, it almost seems to me like there's been a kind of a, an unofficial nod and a wink given to some people. 
Well, I think there has been. Uh, I think there's no question that an awful lot of people who shut down without waiting to be told have now discovered that, first of all, they, that they did something they didn't need to do, and secondly, that when they ask, the word is, well, why do you shut down in the first place? Mm. You're free to open. Yeah. And so they are. Uh, and this will increasingly be so. I, uh, Trevor Kavanagh in The Sun today is pretty much saying uh, that the thing is over. He, you know, the opening of his of his piece on page 14 of The Sun is right. the lockdown is over, not officially, not quite, but the dam is bursting. Mm. And I think that the reason for this is that the government knows perfectly well that if it tries to hold on much longer, uh, it won't be able to hold the line. So all kinds of formal, informal and semi-formal relaxations will be seen over the next couple of yes. weeks as they try to maintain the illusion that the thing is still applying while letting rip in all kinds of areas. Yeah, because it seems to me, Peter, and I don't know if you agree with this, but that there was an awful lot of kind of voluntary closure that went on that didn't perhaps have to happen. And I know that you've been on this very much as, as, uh, from the beginning consistently. You know, you and I differed at the beginning because I thought it was necessary for us, for us to get past this kind of period of, of doom and gloom where too many people might get it. We seem to have passed that point. You know, we seem to have seen uh, that the NHS has coped perfectly well. And so now it is time to move on. And, and if in, indeed that is what happens, are you less concerned that we are going to have this terrible, terrible economic downturn? Because if we do it in time, maybe it will be OK. No, alas, no, it's all we've already missed any chance of doing it in time. The, the damage to the economy and to small business particularly and to quite a lot of large businesses as well as the general flow of, of economic lifeblood in the country is terrible. And as I think I've said before, if you have a heart attack, the thing to do is to make absolutely sure you get to hospital as mm. quickly as possible, yeah. both metaphorically and in real life. And what we have done is the nation has been having simultaneously a heart attack and a stroke, and it's been sitting doing nothing about it. And every day this goes on, the irreparable, irreparable damage has grown deeper. So I'm afraid, no, I'm not particularly heartened by that. I mean, I, we'll all be glad when it's over, but I think as soon as it is, is over, we'll find, uh, especially those of us who've been complacent about it, uh, the extent of the huge cost uh, which we have imposed needlessly on ourselves and the, the, the lost jobs, the lower standards of living, the, the lower wages, the lower, pub, the lower standards of public service, uh, the general pinched nature of life which will follow is going to be something of a surprise to those who think this has just been a, a holiday on government money. Maybe so, but equally you uh, and I have discussed this for the past four weeks and, and you know, I, we've, I think we've both been surprised at how um, well the country has coped with it. And, and if you look at, for example, the pictures of, of people who still travel by public transport on the tube and stuff, which I don't anymore, um, the, the trains are still pretty busy in London. People are going to work. These are manual workers, generally speaking, who are, you know, probably at the bottom end of the economic scale. Um, but they're still carrying on. They've still been working. So uh, do, you, do, you, do you worry that you might have overestimated how bad this is going to be? No. No, I don't think so. I, it, it, it is, it, it's clear. I mean, I know the area in which I live very well. I've lived here for more than half a century. It's clear. I, I, during my permitted exercise, I get on my bicycle and I go around. I, I keep a pretty close eye on what's going on. It's clear that uh, the economy around here has pretty much ceased to function. And the problem with economies is they're very, very tightly interlinked. And if, if one part of it isn't working, if the, the flow of trade is not happening in one place and the, 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 the buying of supplies and the, the, the paying of rent and all the other things that are going on are not happening, then it kills. And it kills jobs and it kills businesses. And the effects will be enormous. The other thing that kills, of course, is the tax base, which is the, which is the source of, of all the money which goes to pay for the National Health Service. We all 
say that we love. But I would like to mention one thing which seems to yeah. me not, not to have been very thoroughly investigated. It was it reported and then quickly passed over, which is work by a Professor Carl Hennigan of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford, uh, which he, he worked on a, a very simple thing. He said, when did the people who died uh, of or with, we don't know, uh, COVID-19, when did they actually die? And, of course, this is not the same as when were their deaths announced by mm. the government on the NHS. In fact, it's totally different. Yes. And if you go to the website of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, what you'll find is that he's done a chart of deaths, and it shows, and it continues to show, as the, as the word continues to come in, that the, the deaths from COVID-19 peaked on April the 8th. And you'll remember that the the Johnson shutdown began on March the 23rd. Yes. Now, given the incubation period of the disease and the time it takes to kill those whom it kills, it is inconceivable that this peak, which since when the numbers of dead have been falling, is in any way connected with the shutdown. It can't be. Well, uh, and so what we actually have for the first time is clear evidence that, the, that there is no connection between the shutdown and the, the incidence of the disease, or certainly not, no, none that can be shown. On the contrary, uh, the, the decline in the disease, which has been evident to careful researchers, I have this on, on, on my screen at the moment, careful researchers since Professor Hennigan's work, uh, is, is independent of this. And this is the point I've been making over and over again. If you look at all the countries of the world, there is no consistent... Uh, there's no consistent link between any p particular form of government action and any particular level. And I've, I've insisted on this because it seems to me that until it's generally recognized in politics and the media that this thing is mistaken, that we're going to be hung about for months and possibly years with futile and, and, and inhibiting uh, precautions which will prevent the proper revival of the economy and the, the forcing of people to wear face masks and all the other stuff which is now now being suggested. Uh, instead of saying, actually, we made a mistake, let's get back to being a sensible country as quickly as possible. And as long as we still are hag-ridden by this belief uh, that the that the shutting down of the country has contributed to the defeat of the disease and that the and that if, it, if we hadn't shut down the country, that the hospital intensive care units would be full of patients. Uh, we will continue to behave in this yes. self-damaging fashion. Well, I think that you, you, you can't really ever know if that was going to happen or not, because the fact is that I think what the government set out to do was to, to make sure that the hospitals were not overrun. They were successful in doing that. It's entirely... Well, that's what it's you say, well yeah, but they were, Peter. It's, it's, hang on, let me speak. It simply, isn't, it, isn't simply, it simply cannot be demonstrated. You're going back, you've gone back to interrupting me. Well, it has well, been I demonstrated. I think this is so important. <laughs> I think that well, no, but this now, is my we're point. We're reaching a stage where we have to... We have to uh, well, let me give my... look at what it is that we've done. Well, let me explain to you what I believe that we've done. We have done what the government set out to do. This was never about stopping people from dying because the view out, out there is that if you are vulnerable, if you are relatively old, you probably will die if you get this disease. And when you look at the numbers of people dying around the world, even in Sweden, the numbers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, you can argue with me and say, yes, but they didn't shut down their economy and therefore they will recover better, and that may well be true. But at the bottom of this argument, what we have seen is that this government set out not to, uh, to, to overrun the NHS and has been successful in that. And basically, if you look at the numbers of people who are going to continue to die, um, it will, you know, the infection rate will continue to rise because at one point we were told at the beginning, everybody eventually will get this disease. I may have had it, you may have had it, you know, everybody sitting around me may have had it, um, but we survived it. But the point is, is that we 
probably saved the NHS from, from being overrun by doing what the government did. Well, I'm glad you say probably, because there is a completely valid alternative hypothesis, which is that there, would, there was never going to be an overwhelming of the, of the intensive care system. But we don't uh, know that, do we? Well, we don't know that, but we also don't know that, that, uh, that there would have been. And the thing is that those who have taken this extraordinary action well, for the first time, I think, in the history of the country, uh, banning people from, uh, from any kind of public political meeting, uh, of confining them to their homes, uh, of setting the police on the streets, telling people whether they can go in their mm. front gardens or sunbathe or not, and at the same time, trashing an economy which was already wobbling quite badly on the rails. These immense actions seem to me to require a lot more than Oh, well, it was probably the right thing to do. Uh, <laughs> well, I take your point. If, okay. you're going, if you're going to derail a speeding train, which is pretty much the... the, the, uh, the See, this is where you and I differ. What we've done. Hang on a minute. You had a long go. Let me I had a short go. Well, it, it was longer than mine. <laughs> if you're going to derail a speeding train, which is pretty much what the government did with the economy, uh, to, on the grounds that by doing so, you will save the life of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a loving mother and child uh, further, further down the line... Uh, which is a pretty interesting moral dilemma anyway. But if, 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 you, if you're going to do that, you have to show that the mother and child were actually on the line and were going to be struck by the train. You can't just say, well, I thought there was somebody there, right. and so I derailed the train, which is now lying with its wheels... Well, there's a moral question. There's, a, 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 there's a, a moral full, question full, full for of, you. Full of dead and injured people. Well, let me ask you this, this question. What's happening? Well, here. let me ask you a question. If you saw a mother and a child on a train track and you were driving the train, would you crash the train to avoid them, thereby well, you, killing everybody else? Well, that, 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 that is one of those dilemmas. But assuming that, you, assuming that the answer is yes... Or would you just run them over? Assuming that the answer is yes, and there was then an inquiry afterwards which, which concluded that the, 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 the mother and child... Uh, on, on the track were, were completely uh, phantasmal, they hadn't been there at all, and you'd imagine them, then I reckon your train driving career would be over. Yeah, but I don't think we can say with any surety that we've all imagined COVID-19. There's 2 million, there's two million people dead. What we may have imagined is the scale of it. And, and, well, I don't and think that, so. That, 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 is, that remains the point. I, I, I would draw your attention to a fascinating letter which was published in the Sunday Times yesterday from Professor Sir Julian Legrand mm -hmm. of the Marshall Institute of the London School of Economics. And he says uh, that in the early 2000s, I was the health policy advisor in the number 10 policy unit. I received an alarming memo from public health officials about avian flu, suggesting it might be necessary to close down the country as we are doing now. Otherwise, there would be 7 million dead. Right. I relayed the message to the prime minister, who not surprisingly hit the roof. We then did some serious checking, recognized the absence of strong evidence, and made sure sense prevailed. The country remained open, and the epidemic, which he puts in inverted commas, went away. Experts tend to focus solely on their area of expertise. Epidemiologists naturally will emphasize potential loss of life due to an epidemic. Policymakers have to balance priorities, such as lives lost against livelihoods destroyed, yes. in a way experts do not. In the present case, an uncritical acceptance of the experts' predictions has led to a lockdown that is almost certainly too severe. I repeat, Professor Sir Julian Legrand... But you see, I would say this... A former Downing Street advisor... Right. I would the say... Sunday Times yesterday, yes, I well saw it. Reading, no, I, I did. I read it yesterday. But let me yeah, tell you this. Well, it's, it's not been... Frankly, it ought to be on the front pages of several newspapers today. Well, no, because he's just another man who has oh, another opinion. Another yes, he is. He's another guy with another opinion, just like you and just like me. The bottom line is this. If, for example, the um, economy 
uh, had remained open. And I, for one, do not accept for a minute that my life, and I may be one of the lucky ones because I'm still coming to work, but my life is not that different. Aside from the fact I haven't seen my children, which is basically my choice because I think it would be wrong to do that sort of thing when everybody else is having to, to face uh, problems as well. I go shopping once a week. I go to the supermarket where I can buy all the things that I would normally buy. Uh, I can buy the nice wine that I would normally buy. Uh, I can get in my car. I can go and get petrol. You know, I don't feel as though we are in a situation at all like there have been in places like Spain, in places like America, uh, in places like uh, Japan and others. You know, we have not had to lose our liberty in the way that you've described. And I think that uh, in order to save the, the, the number of, of, of horrible things that could have happened, I think it was worth it. And I think as we come out of it, we will realise that we did the right thing. Well, I know that's what you think, and, I, and, I, and I, my point is that I profoundly disagree with you, and I think that once this is over, that we need to have a very serious inquiry into it, because I believe that if we do not recognize uh, the, the actual case, which was this was a grave and panicking mistake by an inexperienced government with, uh, with, with very little idea of what it was doing, then we will do it again. And if we do it again, it will be worse. And the other thing is that it, in the period of penury and, uh, and high taxation and, and inflation and lost jobs and unemployment and people suddenly discovering just what universal credit really is like, uh, in that period which is coming, all the actions which the government will then take from probably ripping up any kind of planning restrictions to allow builders to build anything they like wherever they like and uh, the, the, the probably the, the confiscation of, of uh, quite possibly the confiscation of savings. There's that word probably again. Well, it is probable because we don't know, but it is interesting that in two major Fleet Street newspapers, the prospect of a capital levy, that is to say a, a, a seizure of money, uh, from people's savings and and, uh, and the alleged value of their houses is being is being discussed. There's an awful lot of speculation. I would be, I would be, I would be unsurprised, given the level of money which the government has spent, which it does not have, and borrowed, which it cannot afford to borrow. If anything of that kind, anyway, in that era, what will ceaselessly be used to justify all kinds of wrong, bad, and destructive actions will be the excuse which is being used today. It was all done to save the NHS, and it's still being done for that. If that excuse doesn't hold, then these things which are, which are going to be imposed on us, and that's you and me too, these things which are going to be imposed on us and on millions of people in the coming months and years are going to have to be challenged. No, I accept that. And I will be country standing... Government action should be challenged. Listen, we Peter... Should not be, we should not be simply prepared to roll over and say, oh, well, yeah. the government says it, it must be No, true. Peter, listen, I will be standing side by side with you when those questions are asked. But as of right now, I think we have to take the view that what they have done has been a success. And if you look, for example... Why do we have to do that? Well, hang on. Look at this number here. On the 10th of April, right, deaths recorded in Sweden, 870. That was 86.1 per million. 26th of April... 2,194, which is 217 per million. It could well be still that Sweden ends up in a worse place than we are. Well, it could be, but the trend is not in that direction, as far as I know, the last time I looked. But the, the, the point about Sweden is this. If you take... Uh, if, if you well, the 26 apply, was yesterday, so that's about right Sweden, up to date. Well, the figures at, 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 at weekends are always a bit dodgy, and as I've pointed out, the real figures to look out for are the ones like the ones Professor Hannigan has come up with. Uh, for this country, I've seen no comparable figures for Sweden, so I don't know whether they've had a peak or not. But in this country, we've had a peak, which has not appeared in the government announcements because it's not the way they announced. De there are deaths still being announced, mm. which took place in, Mar on, in the middle of March. Yeah. 
And that, that's why they, they, they don't... Well, there are loads of deaths that aren't being announced at all. how many deaths they've, they've, they've found out about, yeah. not how many deaths have happened. Right. The point about Sweden is this. If you, if you compare the Swedish population of 10.2 million with ours of 66.6 million and apply to Sweden uh, the prediction that was made by Imperial College through their modelling, uh, that if uh, the sort of measures that Sweden are applying were applied in Britain, 260,000 people would die. The equivalent number in Sweden would be approximately 39,800. And the current level of death in Sweden is slightly above 2,000. So I think what we're saying... Well, it's not, is it? Because I've just told you it's now more than 2,000 in one day. Uh, no, no, no. I think, you, I think you have to be wrong there. OK, well, I... I, mean, I, I can check the world... I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at the these figures here. While, while, while we're doing this, if yeah. you may. Yeah, OK. Total number of deaths. In, in Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the total number. Total it's, number of deaths is two thousand one hundred ninety-four, according to the world yeah. that I have here. But that, but and that is, but, down, but, but that is definitely more than double uh, or triple what it was on the tenth of April. Oh, wait a minute. I mean, the, the uh, okay. eight hundred and seventy. Just saying. No, I've got the. Um, I've got. Well, I've got, what I've got daily, is da daily deaths in Sweden. Yeah. So you have um, April the twenty-first, one hundred eighty-five. April 22nd, 172, April 23rd, 84. I think that's um, consequence of, no, this can't even be consequence of weekend. April 24th, 131, April 23rd. Yeah, so the 2000 40. figure must be and in those total. Those are the levels of deaths. That, right. that, 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 that I think you're, you're, you're mixing up some other figure. The total number of deaths, so according to World Officer up to April 25th, is 2,192. I don't know whether I can refresh that to produce... Yeah, well, I've, yeah, that, that figures. Yeah, no, you're right. 2,194 2, is what I've got at 26th okay, of April. Yeah, the, the, the figures... For the, the, the figures but the point is it's the, rising, the deaths, right? The deaths given for yesterday were 40, which is obviously an underestimate because it was a weekend... Yeah. Um, a, 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 a weekend My point is, is that 40, but, but we haven't got a lot the, more time the, here, Peter. The original point, which you, which you interrupted to give what I think was an incorrect figure, <laughs> was that the number, number of deaths in Sweden is, is, is um, not much above 2,000. Yes. So to 2,194, according to World But it's rising. And, and, well, of course it's rising. The death figure always rises. People don't, um, don't come back to life. But the, uh, the British figure is rising. Well, that's not the point. The point is that the, if you applied Imperial College's modelling to Sweden, then the policy, according to Imperial College, by, by following the policy which, which yeah. Sweden is following, the, 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 the death rate in Sweden will reach 39,800. Yeah. But, but also, I need to interrupt you just because we haven't got a lot of time, Peter. 2,194. I, need, I just and, need to interrupt you quickly. It may be that there is about to be a sort of hecatomb of deaths in Sweden which will, yeah. will raise all these two figures, but at the moment, I see no sign of it. Let me just and make one is, last point. Real test. Instead of going on and on, as so many people do, about how Sweden's deaths are rising and so on and so forth, what they should do is work out what it is... I've got a better question than that. ...people said would have happened in Sweden. I've got a better question. What they did. I've got a better question than that, because we've only got about a minute left, and oh, I appreciate I your time. Like this when it gets tough. No, listen, that's the way it goes. My question to you is this. You don't actually know what the result of their uh, policy has been in Sweden. You don't know whether their economy is tanking, because, quite frankly, people that I speak to say that, yes, people have chosen to keep restaurants open, but hardly anybody's going to them. So, actually, the amount of people who are keeping the economy afloat is dwindling by the day. And as more and more time goes on, it could well be that their economy tanks just as badly as ours does. Well, it will. It would say every economy in the world is being damaged yeah. by this. But that, that, that's, that's not the question. The question is, is, is it, would it have been worse if they had done what we did, and would it, be, and would, would it have been better here if we had done 
what they did. And that's, that is the simple point, and it's, and it's one which I shall continue to examine yes. long after this is over. And I think those people, you know, everybody who, have, who, has, um, who has lighted on Sweden as an interesting example of what would have happened or might have happened if we had acted differently will have that example to look at, and I think they should continue to do so. OK, Peter, thank you very much indeed. My we'll pleasure. catch up with you again next Monday uh, when we'll see uh, by that stage whether we have reached phase two, uh, as Boris Johnson talked about this morning. Uh, Peter Hitchens, of course, columnist of the Mail on Sunday. That will all be on YouTube later on. Uh, do look out for it. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Coming up, we're going to be speaking about Stonehenge because it's that time of the day, just after 12.30, when we do our homeschooling scenario. So if you haven't done it yet, uh, by all means, gather your children around the radio and you will learn something you didn't know uh, about a very ancient place down in, uh, outside of Salisbury in Wiltshire, where I used to live very close to actually. Gary says this, Mike, the interesting thing on UK music was that the previous chairman was Michael Duger, former MP and Shadow Secretary of State uh, for the DCMS. Isn't that interesting? Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, Malcolm Sheen says this, but with Sweden's death peaked on the 8th of April the same as ours. Here's the most up-to-date graph I've sorted into the date of death uh, as um, Carl Hennigan does with UK figures. Also their chief advisor has confirmed they have flattened the graph. Philip says, I think you maybe missed uh, Peter Hitchens' point about the lockdown date and the peak death date being too close together. Uh, he says lockdown day was 23rd of March peak death rate day was 8th of April first symptoms to death average is around 28 days Great debate, as always. Yeah, I mean, I always think that the lockdown day actually was further away than that, but I keep forgetting that we're so far into April now that it's Monday, April the 27th. I mean, the end of this week uh, is going to be May, for heaven's sake, which I know is stating the obvious. But, uh, hey, uh, how about this from Faye, who says, Tom Watson had caught up in shady shenanigans again, shocker. He hasn't returned the money from Max Mosley. He backed pedophile Carl Beach, uh, which so many innocent people we've seen accused of crimes they didn't admit. Music industry needs to rethink. Well, I think there's a lot of people uh, in the music industry who are not happy about Tom Watson, particularly given uh, that many people in the music industry, uh, including uh, radio DJs, including people like Cliff Richard, were sort of uh, somehow suspicious, uh, that had the, had the eyes of suspicion on them because of what this guy was talking about and because it was being endorsed by the Labour deputy leader of the Labour Party. Absolutely extraordinary. Let's talk to Dr Rob Ixer, though, who is our favourite expert on Stonehenge, one of the world's greatest heritage sites, one of the most fascinating places I think uh, I've ever been. And if you've never been there, you must go. Um, it is quite remarkable, but nobody really knows how it did get there. Uh, Dr Rob, a very good um, afternoon to you. Welcome. Thank you very much, and, and to yourself. Now, can you tell us, uh, with any degree of surety, um, how long Stonehenge has been there? Yeah, it, it started about, uh, this is before any stones, uh, about 3,000 years BC. OK. So it's, been, it's been around 5,000 years on and off. To begin with, it was just a, a ditch. OK. Uh, and then the um, 64 holes were dug... And the blue stones, these famous blue stones from Wales, were probably inserted. Some people think it might just have been wooden posts. Right. And then it was quite some time later before they started... Uh, well, the Sarsons, the big stones that we know all about, did, didn't really arrive at Stonehenge until about 2600 BC, so 400 years after right. they started... And when it was first kind of earmarked, if you like, as a place to gather, yeah. why, why was that? Why was that particular place picked? Well, people have said all sorts of things. It appears
Yes. The, the most important thing about Stonehenge, apart from the fact that it's a cash cow for English heritage, <laughs> the, the most important thing about Stonehenge is its astronomical alignment. And it's, it's aligned uh, so that it focuses on the midwinter sunset right. and the midsummer sunrise. And that presumably has uh, religious reasons for, you know, the rebirth of the new year, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Because there are some people who think that it's a sort of giant sundial, don't they? Well, yes. Uh, that's been said since about the uh, 60s, I think. Uh, some people think it have said it's no longer generally accepted that it's an eclipse uh, calculator. OK. Um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, it has its astronomical alignment. And the reason it's where it is on Salisbury Plain and, say, not 20 miles away in any other direction is it appears by sheer chance that already there were natural alignments pointing in the same direction, that natural alignments that aligned along the sunset, sunrise. Right. Offices. And so they saw that and then decided that they would memorialise this happenstance by erecting stones and then more stones and then more stones. Stonehenge has been, from, for about 1,500 years, it was built and rebuilt so often that the blue stones were moved so often that I think they were dizzy most mm. of the time. <laughs> and uh, are you certain that the blue stones came from Wales? Yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah, there's no doubt whatsoever. No, I mean, that's one of the... Um, <clears throat> I have claimed some credit for that, and it, it, it's the great highlight of my life, really, that we could actually pinpoint an actual locality mm. in Wales at Craig Rossi Fellon to some of the blue stones found at Stonehenge. Uh, and other places, uh, also some of the dolerite stones, uh, dolerite blue stones have also been pinpointed to Khan Gerdoch. Uh, so, yes, yeah, there's, no, there's no doubt. I have to say many of the blue stones, we're not quite certain whereabouts on the Preseli Hills they come from. Mm. But with the exception of the altar stone, which probably comes from Monmouthshire, they've all, they, all the blue stones come from... West Wales. Right. And so how did they get there? Because you and I spoke about this a few years ago, I think. Well... Um, and, 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 you know, there was that attempt, wasn't there, to move a stone um, They've had two, across, two or three attempts by yeah, and it trying sank. to move the stones um, on rafts. Right, and, it's, and it sank, right, on, in yes. the Bristol Channel because it's too and heavy. On both, and in fact, they did it for the millennium as well, and the, it, the same thing happened. It also sank. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things that we've been able to show is that uh, there really isn't any association between Milford Haven and stones at Stonehenge. So now people think that they probably followed the A40 along the uh, tops of the hills in South Wales and that they carried them. But the, we realise they're not nearly as heavy as we thought. I mean, they're too... Uh, tons, mm. that's heavy enough. But two tons can be carried uh, in, a, in a, a harness. And it, it may be that what they did was uh, each group carried the stones through their territory with lots of feasting and whatever, right. uh, passed on to the next people who did it. I, I always remember seeing them move... Was it the Enterprise, the the 
through the streets of Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. And they had to, you know, move everything away, and the crowds came out, and it was great festivities. Mm. And I think it was a bit like that. I okay. Think but why go all that way to get those stones, particularly? Because well, presumably they could have got stones from much more nearby, nearby well, sources, they, couldn't they? They could have done, but, I mean, well, this is where we get into speculation. Yeah. Um, the most current theory is that there was probably bluestone circles on the Priscelli Hills beforehand, and these, of course, this just begs the question one stage further back, uh, and these stone circles, the blue stones, were sacred for wh whatever reason, and they decided to move them from Priscilla's into Wessex. Yeah. Um, other people have said, well, the stones were again uh, in the Priscilla's, uh, they had magical or were perceived to have healing properties, and that's why they moved them to um, Stonehenge. In fact, people have said Stonehenge w was the lords of uh, the Neolithic Bronze Age. Yes. But it's all, um, well, to my mind, <laughs> it's all fun and fancy. I'm not really sure. But the only thing we do know is they did move them, so these stones were important. Um, uh, what they were composed of is of no great significance, but the stones themselves, I guess, a bit like holy statues, holy relics, the stones themselves had significance, mm. had importance, sufficient that they would expend the amount of energy that it took uh, to carry them up the 100, 150 miles from the Priscilla's to uh, Stonehenge. Right. And then, as I say, for the next... 500, 700 years, place them, dig them up, put them in new places, yeah. dig them up. And, and what, do you, what do you make of the, um, uh, the, the, the theory that there's a sort of ley line scenario going on where you've got the, um, the sort of the magical line that comes up through Glastonbury, supposedly, which was where the, the Glastonbury thorn sprouts, you know, on Christmas yes, Day, yes. then comes up via Avebury through Stonehenge, ends up going all the way up, sort of supposedly passing at some point um, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table somewhere. Do, yeah. you, do you give any credence to that? No, somebody, somebody did <laughs> no, okay. piece of work and they worked out all the significant ley lines yeah. between uh, all the Tesco supermarkets. Oh, yeah. Given enough points, you can draw ley lines wherever <laughs> you like. Yes. Um, no. So you're not, you're not one of those that thinks of Stonehenge as a sort of magical powers temple of some kind? Uh, no, no, I don't think it has any magical... And I certainly don't think it's a hub for aliens. I mean, delightful as that would be... Uh, just the crusties. I mean, it, it, to stand in the middle of Stonehenge is a mystical, too strong a word. There is a great sense of presence. Oh, yes. No, I get that. In it. Uh, and, but more than that, I don't, I don't really know. Mm. But it's very difficult. It's, it, I guess it's equivalent to, say, standing in the fabulous Durham Cathedral. Yes. Yes. No, I think it's a magnificent piece of our a magnificent piece of our history. Dr. Rob Ixer, thank you very much indeed. Stonehenge, uh, a place of great mysticism, and it is really quite a remarkable spot. The thing that you find most surprising, I think, when you see it for the first time, is that it's not as big 
as you expect it to be. You expect it to be this sort of massive, overpowering, um, you know, scene where everything's really, really huge. And actually, it's quite small. And as you drive up towards it, you can't believe... I mean, obviously, it gets bigger as you get closer to it, but it's not very big, which is the funny thing. And now you have to park... When I first used to go to Stonehenge, you could go right up to the stones and touch them. Now, I'm not quite sure if you're still allowed to do that. You have to park across the street. You have to go under a tunnel. You know, it's all become very much more touristy than it used to be, where you used to just be able to park on the side of the road, wander across the road where there was no fence, and just go and stand next to the stones, which was quite remarkable. I once spent a very strange weekend down there um, with some friends when I was at university, but probably less said about that, the better. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Report. Public of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio.